0: Good Good morning. It's good to have you here. If you have a Bible or a device, go ahead and flip over to Luke 9. That's going to be the passage that's going to show us Jesus very clearly today. And listen, if you don't have a Bible and you want a paper one, just a, a material Bible, we have them out in the lobby, and that's for free for you if you want one or if you want a leather-bound one. I'm sure we have some in the Lost and Found we can make available to you. Just scribble that name out and put your own name in. <laughs> But Luke 9 is going to be very helpful for us. It, like last week, I think is a very fascinating passage. Um, It's one that you hear preached very often. And we're going to start down in verse 10. So Luke 9, verse 10, we're just going to go a few verses. This is the word of the Lord for us today. On their return, the apostles told him, Jesus, all that they had done. And he took them and withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida. And when the crowds learned it, they followed him, and he welcomed them and spoke to them of the kingdom of God and cured those who had need of healing. Now the day began to wear away, and the twelve came and said to him, Send the crowd away to go into the surrounding villages and countryside to find lodging and get provisions, for we are here in a desolate place. But he said to them, You give them something to eat." They said, "'We have no more than five loaves and two fish, unless we are to go and buy food for all these people. For there were about 5,000 men. And he said to the disciples, "'Have them sit down in groups of about 50 each.' And they did so, and he had them all sit down. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing over them. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd. And they all ate and were satisfied.' And what was left over was picked up, 12 baskets of broken pieces. Okay, keep your finger right there in that passage because we're going to flip back to it here in a moment. Some of you might have read this book. I never read it. But back in 2000, there was a book that kind of started to rip through all of the conference circuits, especially the Christian ones. Um, it I, I was one of those books that you hear about that feels like everybody else in the world has read except for you. It was not a Christian book. It was one written by a political scientist. His name is Robert Putnam. It was more of a cultural commentary, really. It's a book called Bowling Alone. And in this book, he had compiled about 50 years of research and put it into this book that is now probably giving us research that's 50 60 years old and but what he says is there is a 45 percent decrease since the 60s a 45 percent decrease in entertaining friends and how we entertain people and bring them into our world he also shows some statistics on the average time it takes for an average American family to have an average dinner and it's about 10 to 15 minutes and although we have houses that are built with dining rooms, the typical American family never really dines in the dining room. I mean, think about it. But most of you, you probably don't even have a dining room table. you got like an elliptical trainer over here and an extra desk with a computer on it and some boxes of things you swear you're going to get around to, but you haven't gotten around to yet. But basically, and what gave title to the book, is he found that there was an uptick and an increase in the number of bowlers in America, but a decrease in leagues and in teams. The summary thesis for his book is that we are very good in learning to get better at protecting ourselves from outsiders. We as a people are getting very proficient at protecting ourselves from outsiders. I mean, we've even learned to commercialize it And I was talking to to Adam Dethridge about this earlier in the week. We were talking about how we have commercialized this thing called the third place, which probably um, has been coined maybe only in the last decade or so. A third place is a place not home, and it is a place not work. It is an other place where you can meet people. You can do life on life with people, get to know people. Starbucks is a third place. They've made their money off of that, not the coffee. I'm not saying the coffee is bad. I'm saying that's not where they made their fortune, right? Panera is a third place. Brew pubs, third places, these places did not exist 50 years ago. If you were going to hang out with somebody 40 or 50 years ago, you went to their home, you met them at softball league, or you saw them whenever church got together and gathered. Putnam also talked about two kinds of relational connections that he was seeing start to wither away. One is what he calls bonding relationships. Now, we've called it something different in this room. We've called them affinity relationships. A bonding relationship is one where you get to know somebody that is a lot like you. You walk into a room, you have a five-year-old and a two-year-old. They have a five-year-old and a two-year-old too, right? They're in a blue-collar job looking towards a white-collar job, but that's where you're at as well. And so there's this affinity. There's enough similarity to where you just kind of easily bond, right? The other kind of personal connection is called bridging, and that's where you are linking up and building relationships with people who are different than you, Right? different maybe socioeconomically, ethnically, you could fill in the blank. What he was showing in his book is that the institutions that used to give birth to both bridging and bonding are going away. That is both churches and how churches gather in institutions like leagues. Now. What's interesting to me in all of that research is that it's more than 20 years old. Like this book came out 20 years ago off of research that he had done before that. This was far before social media came in and drove a bigger crack and wedge into what we call connecting, right? And bridging. I mean, talking about bridging, we have race tensions that have flared up to frightening levels, some at which we have not seen since the 50s. This is old. I mean, in other words, this research is out of date there would be even more of a problem with how we protect ourselves from outsiders than when this book was written. But what does that mean for you and me as a church? How do we as missionaries take data like that and compute it? You see, I'm really enjoying this series, this real quick little series we're hopping in and out of um, before we get to Advent on just the identity of a missionary. I find this stuff fascinating. It's one of my favorite things to talk on. It feels natural for me to work through this with you because this is how this church was kind of came about, was with a, a high missional strength. But to be honest, I mean, this is just mostly what I'm interested in. I mean, you guys know as well as I do, pastors come in different shapes and sizes, and they come with different pet convictions and with different parts of their experience. And for me, if you gave me five sermons to preach and only five for the rest of my life, four of them would be on mission. right. One of them would be on something else, but I'd probably get the mission somewhere else in the sermon. It's just what I love. So this series for me has been refreshing. Four weeks ago when we started this, we started looking at how as an identity, we as missionaries travel. We're travelers, meaning we don't go to different places as much as we go to different puddles of people our Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. When we're in our own Jerusalem and Judea, our own backyard, that's where we're bonding, in Putnam's words. But when we extend our relationships to Samaria across the tracks, and then all the way to the ends of the world, that's bridging. And they both have their own difficulties. They're both hard in different ways. And then the week after that, we looked at how we learn as missionaries, how we kind of pay attention to what the culture is doing. Why are things important to the culture at large? What makes your friends tick? And whenever you come into contact with different artifacts of culture, what do you receive? What is it okay to do? What do you have to reject? And then what is possibly redeemable for God's glory? Week after that, we looked at how to communicate the gospel verbally as we carry a provocative story to a people that are broken and hungry and really ready for a story like this. How we are called as evangelists to sow seeds and water those seeds. And that is what we're called to do. We sow, we water. We sow, we water. We sow, we water. And sometimes God gives us this beautiful gift of watching something happen right in front of our eyes. Where our heart is regenerated. Last week we looked at how missionaries communicate the gospel. Maybe not verbally, but as much nonverbally how we demonstrate the gospel, and how we serve those around us, right? And we didn't even talk about how to serve people. We just focused on why are we serving people? What is the motivation behind it? So today I'd like to talk about how we create space for outsiders through hospitality. I'd like to look at the missionary's host today. Host, right? And this is gonna be new for some of you because most of the time we think about hospitality as comprised of a host, a guest, if they're a good host, good food, right? And then in their house. And that's not wrong, that's not wrong. I think we're gonna flex the definition a little bit. This word has much more room to it. In fact, if we were to come up with a better definition that will suit us today, and probably a more realistic definition of what hospitality is, it's something that involves welcoming, creating space, listening, paying attention, and providing. Those are the five ingredients to the recipe that makes up a very good host, a hospitable moment. It's not just necessarily having things in your house, because you can do that and people still not feel welcome, people still not feel listened to, people still not feel provided for. So location is in mind, but I think it's much more posture when you really look at what's behind the definition. And in fact, you've been in moments with people that had nothing to do with a dinner at someone's house where you felt hosted, have you not? You felt welcomed just in how they listened to you. They, they were paying attention to what's going on. They created space in their calendar, in their daily rhythms, in their heart. They were vulnerable before you. They were exposed. They created a space where you could come into their life and then they provided for you. That could happen in a parking lot. It could happen over the phone. It could happen in work. It could happen anywhere. It doesn't have to be in a home with dinner. It's nice to be welcomed on that level too, isn't it? To be heard, to be provided for. It's a rarity to receive this kind of care. So hospitality can be a kind of sacrament. It's not a sacrament. It's not like communion or baptism, but there are things that have somewhat of a, a semi-likeness semi-like, to it, like a foot washing that we talked about last week. That Hospitality has a power to basically meet people's needs in such a way that it's a powerful display of what the gospel has done for us. It's not just simply meeting people in a detached venue or third place, but bringing people into your world and sharing your life with them so it carries a high ideal of vulnerability of inconvenience, even, right? I give myself a C minus in this. Hospitality. I'm hospitable with an asterisk, if you know what I mean. I can share until it hurts too much to share anymore. I'll let you in and welcome you until it just gets to be a little bit too much. But here's the thing: that's when hospitality actually begins. That's when it begins. Gospel-shaped hospitality begins when we end where our flesh hits that wall and we say no more, I can't do it anymore. Can't do it with them, can't do it here, can't do it any longer. That is when Jesus-shaped hospitality starts to kick into gear. When we find the tail end of where we are and what we need to do in our own power, we just need stamina. And that stamina that only comes by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's stamina that only comes by the power of the Holy Spirit. So hospitality begins When the Holy Spirit empowers us to be vulnerable and share our life when it is very difficult to do so. Another unique thing about hospitality, good hospitality, gospel-saturated hospitality, is it happens better and is of more value when it occurs individually more than corporately. In other words, whenever you guys are inviting people into your lives, there's more of a value and power in that than just us as a corporate body welcoming people into a sanctuary. And listen, this is not a small thing, and we work really hard at how people feel warmly welcomed here. That's something that, in staff meetings, you'll hear us constantly trying to work on. How can we make the average person that walks in feel like they are warmly embraced, they are welcome here, that we're going to listen to them, that we're gonna create space and we're gonna provide something for them? So something we take seriously. This is why we began as a living room. Not a large, epic, and spectacular launch, but a living room. I don't know if some of you know this, most people think that when we started this church, we kind of had no, no choice but to start as a living room. The honest truth is, is we started light with people and heavy with cash. We could have had an epic launch. We chose to do the living room. We could have drowned Knoxville in mailers and in flyers. We could have had all the cool stuff, all of it matching color. We could have, I mean, it could have been huge. We had the ability to do that. You can actually pay for a lot of that to happen. But a living room is what says welcome. A family is what says welcome. Whereas a space like this, no matter what we hand out to our guests before they go to their car, isn't going to say welcome in the same way. I mean, come on, it's an auditorium in a high school. Let's just be real for a moment. This doesn't say welcome as much as it says, keep your guard up. Hey, be on the watch, keep your head on a swivel. That's what this says. If you've ever walked in here as a guest and you had your dukes up still, kind of cautious, not quite sure, you did the right thing. right? This is an odd space. I would do the same thing. I would have my guard up a little bit. So for us, the goal was not to become awesome and spectacular and epic and famous as quickly as possible. It was to welcome a city that felt like it was on the outside looking in. It was to welcome a people. I'm resolved, Knoxville will be changed through living rooms and through families and through get togethers far more effectively than gatherings that are spread all over the city. The proof is, is we have 800 gatherings that are happening this Sunday morning all across our metro area, 800. And we have 85% of our population that's gonna stay home today. There's proof in that. This is why we're so big on community groups. If you're in a comm group or a community group, you're on the front line. You're on the front line of what we would call hospitality. You're in the prime position to make people feel welcome. You're in the prime position to create space, to listen, to pay attention, to provide for. And I know it doesn't feel like that. When you've got chips and sauce on your hand and kids are screaming and your, your discussions uh, keep getting interrupted and your, your schedules aren't syncing up with the person you've been dying to meet with, but you can't make it happen. It doesn't feel like that is anything close to welcoming. But it is. It is. It is. This is what Tim Chester says. He says, the hospitality to which Jesus calls us can't be institutionalized in programs and projects. Jesus challenges us to take mission home. Don't start a hospitality ministry in your church. Open your home. Now, we're going to flex the definition even beyond the home, but the home is one of the biggest ways we can do this. It's one of the biggest ways we can do this. But there's a cost in this, isn't there? There's a significant cost in this kind of missions work, being hospitable, and I'm not just talking about money. How do we create a welcome space in our lives for outsiders? Outsiders looking in, how do we do that? I mean, realistically do that. Why is it so hard for me to do this? Why is it hard for you to do that? Why do you have an asterisk by your name on this as well? And how does the gospel of all stories shape and form how we're supposed to be hospitable. This is a good word for this time of year, is it not? We've got all these easy ups on the calendar that just are open wide opportunities for us to be nothing less than just hospitable. Just hospitable. So let's look back at Luke 9. I'm gonna pull out a couple sentences. Luke 9, verse 10. I'm gonna jump into verse 11. Watch how Jesus builds this environment. Verse 11, when the crowds learned it, They followed him, and he what? He welcomed them and spoke to them of the kingdom of God and cured those who had need of healing. Do you see he's starting to check the boxes of a host. Now the day began to wear away, and the twelve came and said said to him, send the crowds away to go into the surrounding villages and countryside to find lodging and get provisions, for we are in a desolate place. But he said to them, you give them something to eat. They said, we have no more than five loaves and two fish unless we are to go and buy food for all these people. For there were about 5,000 men. And he said to his disciples, have them sit down in groups of 50 each. And so you're seeing him create space. You're seeing him welcome. You're seeing him listen. You're seeing him pay attention to their needs. You see him providing for their needs. That's the definition of hospitality. Jesus is providing an absolute ton of food for an absolute ton of people. There's nothing but speculation on how many people would be at this. We know it was more than 5,000. It's just 5,000 men. If they all had a wife, it'd be 10,000 people. If they had kids, it'd be more, you get the picture. I would venture to say it's probably around 15-ish, give or take a few thousand, who knows how many, but there was a lot of people. And they did not follow Jesus because they were hungry. They weren't looking for a meal they were looking to be fed, two different things. He had the words of God. He would speak and their souls would just light up. He had the very words of God and they were weary and they were hungry and they were desperate enough to go straight out into a desolate place with no lunchbox, with no ability to even think about what they were gonna do for food or where they were gonna go. So he created space, he paid attention, he provided, he was a great host. Now what's really cool about this passage, and this might be new for some of you, this is actually a very key place in the New Testament where God is revealing who he looks like. This is where God is painting a picture for these people of who he is. Remember, he's speaking to a people who knew the story of Moses really well, really well. Not just Moses, but that Moses led an enslaved people away from a taskmaster in Egypt, right? a mass exodus all the way up to a Red Sea. They knew this story about how they walked through the Red Sea. They knew the story about how when they came out of the other side, they were a brand new nation. And then they went through the wilderness for a really long time. And then they were led into the promised land. This was their star-spangled banner. They knew this, and it was such a cornerstone in their culture that if you were to have ripped that story out, their culture would have ceased to make sense in some very key areas. It was a big piece of who they were. In this moment, Jesus is showing you and me, and especially these people, that he is a better Moses. With people out in a wilderness, a much more needy people, and he is seeing an exodus of a more needy people from a worse taskmaster than just an Egyptian pharaoh, but even death itself. And he was leading them into a better promised land from a harsher wilderness. This is a picture of the gospel. The gospel as the centerpiece of the story of the Bible is framed with some beautiful stories. This is part of the framing of the gospel. I do get accused from time to time of making this stuff up. Like, Luke, you find Jesus popping up in every single passage. You're reading Lamentations, and there's Jesus. He can't possibly be in everything. I actually think he can. I think that's how we're supposed to read the Bible. I think when you read the Bible, anywhere in the Bible, you should see through the prism and the lens that is the story of God's passion and favor on you through the person of Jesus who lived, died, and lived again. I think that's how we're supposed to read it. But you don't have to take my word for it. We can go to John 6. Look at John 6. It's just going to be a little bit to your right. You could probably flip a few pages to your right if you wanted to. If not, it'll be up on the screen. We're going to be in verse 30. So they said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Give us this bread always. And then Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Jesus is God's hospitality to mankind. The Father is being incredibly hospitable, and his deepest provision is Jesus, who is a better manna to a worse mankind in deep need and in deep hunger. This feeding of more than 5,000 souls, it's a cool story. I mean, no one hears this story and just the first time they hear it think it's stupid. Everybody loves this story. But it's much more than just a story. It's the Bible beckoning and pointing to a different exodus that's going to come much later with a better Moses. Where God would give a rebellious people manna to satisfy their hunger and give them life. God now gives us Jesus to satisfy our hunger and give us eternal life. That's what we see. That's why this is in your Bible. It's important for you to know that as a New Testament reader, you and me. As we read this New Testament work, Exodus is not detached from the gospel. It's partnered with the gospel. Exodus picks up and holds the gospel for us to see it more clearly. It elevates the gospel. It puts it on display for you and me. That's what's happening here. Now, this isn't the only time we see Jesus host people. We actually see something very cool, very odd, where he even hosts people in moments where he was the one invited in as a guest. People would have a dinner, they invite Jesus in, and he ends up being the most hospitable person in the room. We see that happening. And he usually uses the meal as a moment that satisfies people around him, settles scores, makes peace, the meal was important to Jesus. Jesus was always eating with tax collectors. They would invite him in, he's the best host, and it happens over food people that the world considered an enemy. I mean, think about Zacchaeus, Matthew. When Matthew was called, the first thing he did was march straight to their house and they broke bread together. No one wanted to eat with these guys. They wanted to shank them in an alleyway. I mean, these guys were enemies. They were villains, scoundrels. And we also know that Jesus ate with drunks and gluttons and prostitutes. We know that. It says in Luke 15, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. Why eat? Do you ever wonder that? Why not like a long walk or a sing along, a game of chess, <laughs> anything? Campfire. Why food? Why food? Did you know that there's a reason for that? It's important for us to see the power of a shared meal and what that represented in the ancient world. We talked about this in our last partnership class, so if you are in our last partnership class, this will probably be the second time you've heard a piece of this. But back in the ancient world, kings, power brokers, influencers, they would enact peace treaties by sitting down and eating with each other. It was the meal, sitting across from each other as peers, putting weapons down so you could pick bread up, It was a moment to slow down and do these things, watch, create space, welcome, listen, pay attention and provide for. It was a moment where enemies would become friends and gifts would be traded back and forth. It was a moment where deep vulnerability was exposed. I'm sitting down with you as an equal. We're gonna slow down and we're gonna figure this out. We're gonna become friends. This is why eating with tax collectors and prostitutes and drunks caused so much tension with all the religious elite, because Jesus was simply being hospitable to the wrong people. It's like every predictable high school movie. You see the jock or the popular kid with their little lunch tray and they walk in and they scan the whole cafeteria and who do they see? The lowly nerd having lunch by themselves, table by themselves, no one would dare eat with them because their their approval rating would plummet. So what does the guy do or the girl do? They go over and they sit down their, their tray across from the nerd and they get to know them. I mean, it's so predictable. You've all heard this, right? All the other people are like, well, they're not cool anymore. And all of a sudden the nerd is more cool and it just shifts the balance of who's cool and who's not cool. It was like that. But a lot more. Drunks, gluttons, Prostitutes, tax collectors. He was welcoming the unwelcome. He was establishing peace with enemies. And he still is. He's doing it today. He's doing it this morning. Churches today are going to have, I guess, a meal of sorts with Jesus. Today, there will be drunks and gluttons and idol worshipers and vandals that will receive this kind of ministry. By the way, this ought to change how we see the Last Supper. It should change how you see a broken body on a cross. It should change, actually, how you see communion. Let me just, it's a little bit of a side trail, but I want you to just (laughs) indulge me. I'm going to flip one page over, Luke 6, and I'm going to verse 53. This is giving people the fits, this passage. This might put it in context for you going forward. John 6, 53. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Right then, the whole room stopped talking. You know what I'm saying? They're like, wait, he did not say. Did he say? He did not say. That's what's going on. Verse 54, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. It's like he's purposely stuffing the most offensive words he can find in these phrases for my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him." Okay, it's officially weird now. It's officially awkward now. But this is the direction that communion leans to. This is the direction that communion leads to. He will later on say that whenever you take of communion, the bread and the wine, to do so in remembrance of him. To do so in remembrance of him. Because, friends, listen, we were at war with him, and a peace treaty was enacted, and it was done over a meal. Over a meal. A broken body and spilled blood. The meal is himself. The meal is himself. This is why you'll hear in traditions of old, if you read Puritan writing, you'll see churches talk about it that are very... um, aged in liturgy, and you're actually starting to see a lot of young church plants kind of talk in the same language, they will refer to communion as the table. We've done it from time to time. Or the meal, or they'll call it the family meal. That's why. That's why. It's a place where there is no more fighting. It's a place where we put our weapons down, where enemies are made friends, where gifts are given, and space was made, and welcoming occurred, and provision found its way. Communion is a meal of hospitality, a hospitality from a very good God to a people that are undeserving. This is why we call communion the table under the cross. It's a meal we can't carry hatred into. It wouldn't make any sense, would it? It's a meal that represents grace given to us totally despite us. So, so far we see that God is very hospitable to mankind through the person of Jesus, who is better manna and who is our meal. We see that right now, right? And now we see, if, if, you're, if you're savvy and you've been able to follow along the last few weeks, that when we are sent into the mission world as missionaries, we're not just sent into a mission field to, to talk and to do and to think and to befriend, but we're actually called to host. And not just host, but host in the same way that we were hosted. In the same way that we were hosted. So the big question for you is what is God calling you to let go of in order for this hospitality to happen in your world? because you can't have it without letting stuff go. What is God calling you to let go of in order for this hospitality to make sense? I'm gonna come up with three big ones that I've seen. There are a thousand more I'll never talk about today. But one of the things that I think is hard for us to let go of is comfort. We don't want the inconvenience of emptying ourselves. It's uncomfortable. It's inconvenient. Everyone in this room has a different level of tolerance on hosting and being hospitable with, with your life take the room out of it with the food, just with your life. We all have different squeal points. And it's usually at that point where you're being asked to let something go that you squeal the most. And that's actually the point where you need to invite the Holy Spirit in to give you the durability to go way beyond what your flesh is able to do. Because as we've already seen, where your body wants to say no, where your flesh wants to say no, where your self says enough, that's where hospitality begins. Gifted hospitality begins there. When I welcome people at a personal cost, I show a God who welcomed me at a personal cost. So my hospitality can either preach the gospel very well, or it could preach the gospel pretty poorly. But it's going to do one or the other. So I have to pray. I have to pray here. This is a major point of prayer for me when it comes to hospitality and just having that posture. Another thing we fear losing is control. Control. Because as I said, hospitality became a little bit of a sacrament of forgiveness. And the problem with that is, is we don't like to forgive. We just don't like to forgive. So if you're struggling with somebody in the church, even me, if you're struggling with someone, don't carry that into communion. Don't eat something that represents forgiveness if you can't forgive. Come on. If you're not able to give grace and to reconcile and to forgive somebody who sinned against you, why would you go and take a meal of something that symbolizes how that was done deeply for you. Don't celebrate grace given to enemies if you're just willing to keep collecting enemies. This is why the Bible speaks so thoroughly to reconciling before worship. You'll see that a couple times in the New Testament. Is there a bub between somebody in the church and you? Go get that solved before you keep worshiping. That's the layman's terms of what God is saying to us. And then the last one, we're afraid of losing power. I would like to comment on this a little bit. This typically happens with the poor does not have to happen with the poor, but it typically happens with those who are disenfranchised. We find it easy to connect, but we don't want to see ourselves as equals with those. This is what Putnam would call bridging, not bonding. Christine Pohl talks about it. She is a seminary professor, I think at Asbury, in her book, Making Room. She says, often we maintain significant boundaries when offering to help those in need. Many churches prepare and serve meals to hungry neighbors, but few church members find it easy to sit and eat with those who need the meal. We are familiar with roles as helpers, but are less certain of being equals, eating together. Many of us struggle with being with those in need. Our helping role gives definition to the relationship, but they also keep it decidedly hierarchical. This is what she's saying. We like the hierarchy because it defines our relationship with those below us and it keeps it neat and tidy. I serve, you receive, next in line. It keeps it simple, really, to be honest with you. Becoming friends, that's that's different. That's different. And this is why we're tempted to make hospitality and mission occur on our terms. We want control of that. We want control of that. And you might say to yourself, but Luke, I don't struggle with that being in control of that. This is how it sounds when it comes out of our mouth. I won't give them anything. They're just going to spend it on beer. Does that sound familiar? I'm not going to give anything to them. I'm just going to spend it on beer. A, how do you know? Maybe they are, maybe they're not. B, why does that matter so much to you? Now I know why people say this. It is no love, to enable somebody who's addicted to something. It's no love to keep giving them money where it will purchase something that will just keep tearing them apart, right? We all agree on that. But if that was your only concern, then you would take them and get them something to eat or you'd eat with them by creating space and welcoming, being vulnerable and inviting them into your life, listening, paying attention and providing. And yeah, the first time God leaned into me on this was rough. I remember it was probably a decade or so ago. And it went from me just walking by a person to me grabbing him and bringing him into a restaurant with me where I'm pretty sure he was uncomfortable. I know I was uncomfortable. I think everyone around us was uncomfortable. But what happened over time is we started telling stories and asking questions and I learned about him and he learned about me and we actually laughed a whole lot. We cried a little bit. No, he did not become a Christian. No, he did not become a Christian. We were both nervous. It was an awkward goodbye, as you can imagine. But I wonder if that's a better picture of hospitality than just walking right on by the guy. I think why we say this is because we don't want to be made the fool. We don't want our treasure that we give to somebody that is what we in our mind see below us. We don't want that treasure to be abused or mishandled. It keeps us in control. And here's the truth your hospitable nature, it will be abused. It will be mishandled. You can count on it. You can count on it. You open your home, people will mishandle it. Right, com group leaders, hosts, you open up your heart, people will abuse it. Don't mishandle it. You open up your checkbook, it's going to get mishandled. It's going to get abused. We have some folk in here that work with the disenfranchised every single day. You can ask Nick Raugus this. He'll tell you how tempting it is to build a structure of hierarchy where you stay up top and they stay below, and you can keep it nice, you can keep it neat, you can keep it tidy. But here is the beauty of a passage like this. Jesus came as a host, knowing that he would be abused and mishandled. He knew it. He knew that this would happen. And he did not revoke his welcome. He did not revoke his provision. In this story, I am the drunk glutton begging for money and treasure that I'm just gonna spend on booze. That's me. And he is the host that makes space for me and listens to me and cares for me and provides for me. Listen, there's a thousand more reasons that we struggle with hospitality in our lives. We all, like I said, put an asterisk by our name on this. Why is it hard? It's just because it calls us to go to an uncomfortable place where we're incredibly vulnerable, heavily exposed. But here's the gospel. You are free to be vulnerably exposed. And you are free to give deeply at your cost, at the benefit of others, because such was done for you. There's nothing on this planet that you can hold on to that can really, really satisfy you, quite like God. And when you are mishandled, And when you are dropped, even that brings you into a closer relationship with the Lord. Because hear me, you can't have an intimate relationship with God unless you experience the same things he experienced. So if you want to really experience and walk closely relationally with God, you're going to have to experience what it feels like to be mishandled and dropped and abused and underappreciated. You're going to have to feel all of that. And it's a beautiful thing to walk those roads with our king. It's a beautiful thing. You will be tempted to stop where the flesh says stop, just when hosting gets tough. You will be tempted to hold on to comfort and control and power. You will be tempted to do this. You will need to beg the Holy Spirit to give you the stamina and the durability to go in a place that you're just not able to go without God's help. Go ahead and stand with me. We're going to jump out of this. I'm going to read one more passage to you. We're going to look forward because a host also shows a picture of a better future. This is always important as we head into worship. I'm going to read out of Isaiah. You don't have to turn there. I'm just going to read it to you. I'm going to be in verse 6 of chapter 25. Prophet Isaiah says, On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food. He's talking about a banquet that is to come. This is a banquet that is coming. A feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine of rich food, full of marrow, of aged wine, well refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe tears away from all faces. And the reproach of his people will take away from the earth. For the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord, we have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. This is a part of our gospel that hospitality can really preach well. It's the picture of a dinner coming. It's a picture of a hospitable meal, a feast of the best waiting for us in a space that has been created for us. Even as Christ says, I'm going to make a place for you, a place where we will be loved forever. We need this hope, don't we? I need this hope. I've never met anyone that's had too much hope that says, stop, I've had enough hopes. Never, ha- never met that person. We all need this hope. In the meantime, we have things like hospitality here to point to a very hospitable God. So soon we're going to be taking communion And if you're a part of the church, you don't have to be a part of legacy church, but if you are a son or a daughter of the king, we invite you to take communion and bread and juice that is taken in remembrance of how he was a better meal and a better provision and a better host for us. We just say that we know that we're taking this in a world of tension, but as Isaiah says, it's pointing to a world that we will all eat again one time. I'll be looking at your faces and you'll be looking at my face and we'll be looking at Jesus' face and there won't be any tension in that world. Not at that table. Not at that table. So if you're a Christian in here, I'm going to ask you to just reflect on the question as we go into worship. What is becoming a missionary host asking you to let go of? Why is that so hard for you? Why is that difficult for you? What are you being called to let go of that is just, you say, I can't. I need that too much. It's saving me. For me, as I already said, I don't like the inconvenience. I don't like it. I like outsiders. I love sharing my life. I love learning about their lives. I love talking to them about Jesus. I just don't like doing it for long. I'm not very durable. My prayers sound a lot like me asking, begging the Holy Spirit to give me a posture that takes me way past my comfort level. I want more durability, stamina, endurance for this. But what is it for you? What does it look like for you to say, no more, I'm done? What is it that you're holding on to? What is it that you need to repent for and give back to God? And then for those of you who are here and you are not a Christian, you're a searcher, maybe, skeptic, maybe, maybe you're not even sure. I want you to just picture yourself sitting in a group of 50, in a field, in a desolate place, it says, as Jesus makes food come out of thin air, and gives it to you. And he heals you of that thing that you always had that you could never shake. And he heard your heart without you saying anything. And he gives you a gospel that you just don't deserve. I want you to imagine this moment. Now that's a memory you're gonna give to your kids and their kids and their kids. That's a special moment, isn't it? You'd never grow old telling a story like that. Let me tell you, Jesus is a deeper provision to your deeper need. You need more than food. What I mean by that is, is you need more than that problem going away. Whatever it is for you, that's probably why you're here. You have a problem. You've not been able to see it go away. Church may be a part of making that go away, which is why you're likely here. I'm saying Jesus does make problems go away, but he's actually after a whole lot more than that. As we see in a text like this. Jesus is one who eats with the unworthy. He creates space, welcomes, listens, and provides And God is showing us that he's not only inviting us to a table, he is excited, excited to be our host, amen? Let me pray for you. Father, I thank you for being so sweet to us and giving us more than just manna when we deserve absolutely nothing. We don't deserve a thing. And you gave us yourself. You came yourself. You welcomed us. You created space and an environment, a place where we could be heard. And you listened to our hearts beat. And you, you put words to things we don't even know how to put words to. And you minister to us at a level, not only that we don't understand, but you minister to us at a level that we'll never even thank you for because we don't even know you're doing it. You are that unbelievable. You are that beautiful. You are that thoughtful, that generous to us. You are that kind. You are that powerful. And we thank you for being such a good host. Thanks for hosting us. And Lord, as we look at how we handle the people, the broken people around us, Lord, why is it that we struggle with hosting? Why is it that oh, just inviting people into our lives, being vulnerable, being mishandled, dropped, let down, underappreciated, Or what is it that we're really trying to hold on to that keeps us from getting too close to that line? And can we let that go? I know I, for one, repent. Just looking for comfort, not wanting to be inconvenienced. I want my time to be my time. I want my money to be my money. I want my spaces to be my spaces. I wanna be king over when I let people in and whenever I don't, I want that. Well, Lord, I'm just looking for things to give me peace that are never going to give me peace. You alone give us everything that we've looked for. You alone give us everything we hunt for. So we pray that as we go into a time of worship, that you reveal to us by the power of your Holy Spirit where it is, where it is, is jamming up how our missionary host posture looks to the city around us and to each other. We love you. You're very good to us, and it's in your name we pray. Amen.